What's Christmas? When and where did it begin? While the answers may seem obvious, hop aboard the Bible bus with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. What he has to share may surprise you. I'm Steve Schwetz, welcoming you to the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible. And as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we'll travel to an unexpected place, way back to the Old Testament book of Genesis. Find out why in Dr. McGee's message, Christmas in the Garden of Eden, in just a minute. But first, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas with our loved ones, let's also celebrate the work that God is doing in the lives of our fellow Bible bus passengers. Pinar writes, from her home in Turkey, I am 28 years old. My brother and I grew up at the hands of my grandmother. She took care of us because my parents worked. Whenever we misbehave, she was angry and got violent. She always said things like God would throw us into hell. We always thought we would go to hell whenever we did something wrong. We lived with this fear in our childhood, but after we became adults, this fear did not leave. We met Jesus through your programs and heard how Jesus saved the ones who follow him. It was interesting as we decided to become followers of him. We did not know much about him during that time, but fear had driven us. After we started listening to the programs regularly, we understood more about his love and grace, especially his grace. His love to leave the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep impressed us very much. When we decided to become Christians, we did not know much, actually, but now we understand to what we have said yes. Thanks so much. I do not have scary dreams anymore, and I feel much more confident with my failures. If someone is criticizing me, I just smile and remember Jesus. That parable about the lost sheep in Matthew 18 is powerful, isn't it? Well, let's praise God for the addition of this brother and sister into his family. You know, we have time for one more letter. Here's what Sam in Rwanda recently shared. From childhood, I did not know God because my parents were pagans. We usually listened to different programs at home together, but never followed Christian programs because we were not keen on them. One day, a friend told me about salvation, but did not convince me. So he invited me to listen to your teaching. I accepted, and after a long period, I have taken the best decision and repented and received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Furthermore, my parents followed me and have been saved. God bless you. Well, these are amazing stories, and we'd love to hear yours, too. You know, there's no better time than Christmas Eve to take a few minutes and make a list of all the good gifts that God has given you in Christ Jesus. You can share your thoughts by emailing us at biblebus at ttb.org or mail your note to Box 7100. Pasadena, California, 91109. If you listen in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Now let's pray as we open God's Word. Father, thank you for your Word today and for the celebration of your gift of the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. Bless those who love Him today. And then, Lord, give us ears of faith to receive your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Our subject is Christmas in the Garden of Eden. We are not suggesting this morning that Adam and Eve celebrated Christmas in accordance with our modern tradition. I do not believe that Adam played Santa Claus I do not think that Adam and Eve hung up their stockings, probably I should say fig leaves. They did not exchange gifts. They did not make a snowman. They did not do their Christmas shopping early. They did not, at least Adam, when the 
animals came by, he didn't call one of them Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And Eve did not sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And they did not decorate a Christmas tree. They did not decorate the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. Some wag sent me this week this statement that was not the apple on the tree that caused the trouble, but the pear on the ground. <laughs> A pertinent question, I think, as we begin today is this. What do we mean by Christmas in this land of religious liberty? where our forefathers came here in order to have a place they could worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. In a day when our children in school are forbidden to hear the Christmas story as it's recorded in the only document, the Word of God, and they are today forbidden to sing Silent Night and Joy to the World, they can sing jingle bells, however. It is a pertinent question to ask, what do you mean by Christmas? Christmas means one thing and one thing only. We cannot indulge in some vague and vapid generalities like the brotherhood of man or have it be dissipated and diluted with some sort of a meaningless statement that has to do with peace in our time. May I say specifically, it means the coming of Christ into the world in the flesh. And in particular, it means the virgin birth of Christ. Now, our purpose today is to show that the first coming of Christ into the world was not 1,900 years ago at Bethlehem, but 6,000 years ago plus, 6,000 years at a minimum, and I think it was a great many more thousand years, he came to the Garden of Eden. Christmas today, even as believers celebrate it, it makes the coming of Christ at Bethlehem seemed to be the only single such event. It's often said, you heard it, I'm sure, I cannot believe in the virgin birth because it's contrary to nature. Well, my friend, to be sure it's contrary to nature, that's the whole point of it. Any manifestation of God to man is contrary to nature. And today, to be able to bring up the fact that the queen bee is virgin-born and there's certain other insects and you can find it in the biological world proves nothing at all. When the supernatural touches the natural, it's not according to nature. And every time the supernatural touches the natural, and when God broke in after 400 years of silence, it was Fear not, I bring you glad tidings of great joke. It's fear not, because the supernatural is touching the natural. 
Now, the real difficulty is not the virgin birth is contrary to nature. It's the fact that folk are totally unaware that Christ came to this earth before Bethlehem. And the virgin birth is not just an isolated incident, but it's in a series of events of the coming of Christ to this earth. In our series on the person and work of Christ, I purposely took a subject, the man who lived before he was born. And we attempted at that time to show that in the Old Testament, Christ was there in history and he's there in prophecy. That was a background for what today we want to develop even further. Now, again, may I say that the critic has come forward with another objection. He has many, of course. I hear this each Christmas. If the virgin birth is so important, why did not Paul mention it? The critic has made much of this. I heard it in college. I heard it in seminary. And I've heard it in the ministry ever since. My beloved, the fact of the matter is, Paul did mention it. He used another word, and I wish today we could use this other word. We are not a liturgical church, and because of that, we more or less push away from some very good Bible words, by the way. Paul used it, and I want to turn this morning to one of the places. He mentioned it, by the way, several times. I'm turning to 2 Timothy 1.10. I almost read this chapter this morning, and we would have had we had time. Will you listen to this verse? I should move back, and will you forgive me if I do move back and read, Be not there, thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now I'd like to ask you today, I promise you this will be the last time we're going to ask you to do some real thinking as we go through the message of the morning. Paul says first here, but is now made manifest. The word in the Greek is phani ro'o. And then he says he's made manifest by the appearing, and the word appearing is epiphany. Epiphany ro'o. Epiphany, a word with which we are acquainted today. In fact, it's been brought over into the English by transliteration. And Paul says here, he's now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Now, the word epiphany means a shining in, and that's exactly the word that Paul uses. He uses other words for the coming of Christ, but this is the one on which he dwelt. It's the word epiphany. Fact of the matter is, Paul speaks of the two comings of Christ, his coming at Bethlehem and his second advent. He speaks of both of them as being an epiphany when he wrote to a young preacher by the name of Titus. Now will you listen? For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's Titus 2.11. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. There's our word, epiphany. When he came the first time, it was God shining in. Now will you notice he keeps on teaching us, that is for today, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, will you follow for the future, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior Jesus Christ. And the word appearing again is the word epiphany. Paul said that when he came the first time 1900 years ago, he was shining in, God shining into this world. He's coming again, Paul says, and when he comes again, it will be God shining in to this world. You'll find that the two advents of Christ, both the first advent and the second advent of Christ, are spoken of as an epiphany, and not only Paul, but all the writers of the New Testament do that. I want to turn to John in his first epistle, for he again does as Paul does. He puts them right together. In 1 John, the third chapter, verse 5, listen to John now. And ye know that he was manifested. There's our word, epiphany. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. That's the first coming of Christ. John here is making it very clear that it was God shining in, for that's the meaning of epiphany. Phanirao means to shine, epi means upon or into. Epiphany means the shining in of God into a darkened world. That's the reason that John in his gospel introduces him as the light. And John the Baptist said, I'm not that light. I'm sent to bear witness of the light of the one that's shining into this world. Now will you notice, that's the first mention. But back in verse 2 he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, there's our word again, epiphany, we shall be like him. When he comes again, it's an epiphany. John and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament say that his first coming, all of his coming to this earth, 
was the shining in of God into this world. And when he comes the second time, it will be the shining in of God into this world. It's interesting to note that in the history of the church, the Eastern Church speaks of the baptism of Jesus as being the epiphany. And you'll find the Western Church use it in connection with the three wise men and the appearance of the star. His first coming, may I say, or rather we find the word epiphany used first of all in reference to his second coming, his second advent. Then we find that the word epiphany is used in his birth at Bethlehem. And my beloved, may I say the appearance of a star, a special star shining into this world was no accident. That was to be the herald. That was to be the sign. That was the thing that the wise man had seen. That was the thing that was to mark his shining in to this world. His coming at Bethlehem was an epiphany. And the appearance of a star in the heavens was the proper place for it to be, for he had come out of heaven. Now, may I say this, and will you follow us carefully? This should give us a new appreciation and understanding of the preexistence of Christ. At his second advent, that is, when he comes again, it will be an epiphany. It will be an appearing from heaven where he is now and is shining in to this world. Follow me. His first advent was an appearing from a pre-existent state and he's shining in to this world. Each time he comes from heaven, each time he shines in to this world, Paul says he was manifested in the flesh. May I say, that's the way you describe the virgin birth. He was manifested in the flesh from an existence in heaven and he came down to take upon himself our human flesh. And let me now ask a question. It's not a question of do you believe the virgin birth, but will you tell me how else he could have come into this world? Those that have raised the objection to the virgin birth, come forward and tell me how God can shine in into human flesh, take upon himself our humanity and be without sin. Impossible. Paul teaches the virgin birth, but he uses a little different language than we use today, and unfortunately, we've dwelt too much at that point, and we should emphasize his shining in, it was an epiphany. It was God breaking in to the world. And the star was the herald that a little baby was the container for God. Now the Old Testament, therefore, is filled with appearances of God. And Paul identifies most of those appearances 
with the angel of the covenant and the angel of his presence. Now, this morning, I do not have time to develop that phase of the subject. I wish we could. I'd like to go back to the wilderness. You remember Paul said that that rock which followed them was Christ. And he sent the angel of his presence with them. And it was the angel of his presence that led them. Paul, my beloved, is saying that that rock that followed them was Christ. That rock that led them through the wilderness was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Paul will also take you back to the patriarchs. He appeared to Jacob of all people. He appeared to Jacob. He appeared to Isaac. He appeared to Abraham. It was Christ who appeared to them. Now the question is, will Paul take us as far back as the Garden of Eden? Will he? Will you follow me now? Because Paul's going to take you back to the Garden of Eden, my beloved, but you'll have to follow him. I turn to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, the third verse. I'm taking you now to Christmas Day in the Garden of Eden. Listen to the language, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. First in order of creation is the headship of man. The headship of man over woman. The second in order of creation, Paul says, is Christ over man. He's not through. I read verse 7 of this 11th chapter, 1 Corinthians. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Oh, my beloved, the analogy here is, as the woman was created from man, and in the image of man, and yet different. Thus, man was created in the image of Christ at the beginning. You must remember that our Lord's called the last Adam. And in order, will you follow me now? It's Christmas Day in the Garden of Eden. Man had to be in the likeness of Christ, that Christ might come in the likeness of man. It's Christmas Day in the Garden of Eden. Let's go back there. There are no jingle bells now. There's none of this modern fault at all. May I call your attention to something that is tremendously significant and interesting. 
In the second chapter, verse 4, where I began reading this morning, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. The more I study the Word of God and the more I study Genesis, the more I'm convinced that Moses was not concerned in giving us a story of creation. It's too brief for that to be the emphasis. He's not even concerned about giving you details of a flood. Just give you a few facts, that's all. The important thing was he wanted to give you the families. And what you have in the book of Genesis is simply stated, just the families. We're going to see those families. They become all important. And here is the first one. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. May I say to you, what does he mean? These are the families of the heavens and the earth. And he begins immediately to talk about the creation of man. Will you follow me again? Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Man on the physical side is of the family of the earth. We have repudiated evolution, and I repudiate it with all my being, because when this man began to look around for someone that was kin to him, somebody that was like him, we are specifically told that among all of the creatures that had been created, there was not one found that could have fellowship with man. Not one. But my beloved, whether you like it or not, you've been taken out of the dust of the ground, and dust thou art, to dust shalt thou return. On the physical side, that's all you are. The psalmist says, he remembers that we are dust, and sometimes we forget about it. And when dust gets stuck on itself, it's mud. That you have in you today the same elements that are right out there in the dirt and you are put there, you'll go right back to it physically. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. But you see, man's different. Man's not like the beast of the earth. Man... When he was made of the dust of the ground, God breathed into his breathing places and he became a living soul. The families of the heavens and of the earth. Man's got something of heaven in him. God created him after his image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. I do not know just what way, but I do know this. It says that man's in the image of God, and that made it possible later on for Christ to come down and take upon himself our human flesh. May I move on? What a glorious, wonderful picture this is here. And I want you to notice, and I should mention this, I just read yesterday that the latest now is, you notice these meteorites they're examining? 
They're confident now that life came from off this planet. That's what God says in Genesis 2. God breathed into his breathing places the breath of life. And man became a living self. Now will you follow very carefully. Verse 18, And the Lord God said it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helpmeet for him. And when any woman thinks she's something other than a helpmeet for man, she's missed her calling. Now that's old-fashioned, isn't it? But it's Bible. Now will you notice, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and that's an unfortunate translation. He didn't take one of his ribs. My brethren, you have all of them this morning. Don't worry. God didn't take the rib. Actually, the Hebrew means he took one side of man. He took one half of man to make a woman. Will you notice? The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept. He took one half of Adam, closed up the flesh instead thereof. And with this half which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. She's like him, but she's different. And I want to say this to you this morning. She was the most beautiful creature this world has ever seen. You've never seen any beauty in a daughter of Eve today, but what Eve herself didn't combine that with everything else. Adam fell for her. It was love at first sight. This is a marriage that I know was made in heaven. Some of them are not. They make them in another place, but this one was made in heaven. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife. They shall be one flesh. Marriage is not a union. It's a unity. They become one, one in the child. This man now has brought to him his other half. She is like him, and yet she's different. And Paul says, as the man is the head of the woman, so Christ is head of the man. Because man at first was made in his image in order that he might be able to come down at Bethlehem and become a man. May I say that when that man was created and then that woman, I do not know this. I'm merely guessing now. I think the angels shouted for joy. It's not a baby now born in a stable, but it's a man in the Garden of Eden. A man, I say, two of them, two halves. 
and he is in the image of God. I wish that I could say they lived happily ever after. That's not the way the story ends. It's a sad story. Genesis 3 is probably the most important chapter in the Bible. It tells the story of the entrance of sin and of death into the human family. May I say that Genesis 3 is the only way that you can explain this world we live in today. As we come to this Christmas, my friend, I do not think any person, regardless how much rose water they like to use, they are bound to see today that you and I are living in a crazy, mixed-up world. The threat of world war. Men at each other's throats. Problems that men cannot solve. Suffering everywhere. Starvation abroad. Restlessness in the hearts of men. Hospitals filled. Mental institutions filled. Homes broken. Lives smashed. How do you explain it, brother? Genesis 3 explains it. We are right now in a struggle for our very existence. Sumner Wells, during World War II, he said, We have lived, and we are living in a rotten world. He said that. I didn't say it. If that was true back during World War II, what is it this morning? You will have to answer. My beloved, if we are not now approaching the end of this age when the Lord intends to move His church from this earth and begin His program of judgment that will bring Him to the throne, if God does not intend to do that, I have an awful suggestion to make to you. He may let this world lapse again into the dark ages and the whole world can move back of an iron curtain and darkness again will cover this earth. It was back in the dark ages under a monolithic religious system, a totalitarian dictatorship, and darkness spread throughout the world. And if God's not getting ready to move again, we'll go back of it, my beloved. It's not a pretty thought, is it? Why? Because of Genesis 3. What happened? This man and this woman doubted God. They didn't believe He'd do the best for them. They not only did that, they disobeyed God, they rebelled, and they ran away from God. That's the picture. That's been the picture ever since. Men are not running to God, they're running away from God. And the first Christmas message breaks in now. That first Christmas message was not Merry Christmas. 
It was a question. And it was not the question, where is he that's born king of the Jews? That's man seeking God. But it's God seeking man. And he says, Adam, where art thou? That's the first Christmas message. May I turn to the record and read it. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Lord Jesus Christ apparently was in the habit of coming every day at the conclusion of a day to talk with this man and this woman. They could have fellowship with him and he could have fellowship with them. They are in his image. The head of a man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And so one day he came as usual, but it wasn't as usual. This time when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? It's not what tree are you hiding back of. God knew where he was. Where are you now in relation to God? Where are you now in relation to the world that you're in? Where are you now in relation to those that are round about you? And those that shall come. Where are you? But God was looking for man. My beloved, may I say to you, that was a glorious, wonderful day. When man, though he's now in rebellion against God, he's turned his back on God, he's run away from God, God is still searching him out. Little wonder, did you expect there would be room for him at Bethlehem at the end? Did you? Why no, from the very beginning man's running from him. And when he comes to Bethlehem, man will... Shut the door and say, no vacancy, go somewhere else. But he's coming in. Even if he has to come in through a stable, he'll come. For he's looking for man. You want to know what the first Christmas gift was? Will you listen and I'll close. Unto Adam also and to his wife. Did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? Eve got a new fur coat for Christmas. And so did Adam. How did he get the coat? He got the coat because an animal was slain. That's the only way you can get a skin of an animal, isn't it? An animal was slain. Yes, where sacrifice began. This is the first Christmas gift. 
And we are told that this couple had to leave the garden. They can't stay there and live forever. Thank God for that. Now look, let me ask you a question. Would you want to live in Los Angeles as you're living now forever? I don't think the Chamber of Commerce would want to. I certainly don't. God says to the man and this woman, you'll have to get out. You'll not live forever. Death has come now. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sower which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, a great many think that that means that it was put, these cherubim were put there to keep man away. No. They were put there to keep the way open to God. And when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, they turned and looked back. When they turned and looked back, it was on the east. The sun was going down in the west. And between the two cherubims, there is that glorious shining light. And the way to God is open because a sacrifice has been made and they are now clothed with that which speaks of the righteousness of Christ. Paul again, I began with him. Let me come back and close with him. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. What a sublime act of impoverishment. He came down to find man in the Garden of Eden, his Christmas. Anytime he breaks through, it's the epiphany. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. That's you. That's me. And that's the real Christmas story beginning with Adam and Eve and going on down through the centuries. Would you like to know more? Just visit ttb.org and click on How Can I Know God? Or call 1-800-65-BIBLE and we'll send you a few free resources by mail. You know, if God has used this ministry in your life, you're welcome to be a part of blessing others. Your gift is tax-deductible in 2023. Just make sure you get it dated and posted in this calendar year. You can mail or give online before December 31st. And of course, we love to thank you when you call in your gift at 1-800-65-BIBLE. Or just address your letter to Through the Bible. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. For those in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. And remember, you can always give online at ttb.org forward slash give. I'm Steve Schwetz, leaving you with these joyous words from that heavenly host in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus
Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.